Well, good morning. Good to see you in a, in a new year. Haven't you been longing for a new year? Goodness, it doesn't have to be a new one, just, just a different one, right? A different year from the year we have had would be, would be wonderful. Um, that passage that the passage Mike read to us at the start of our service uh, is a call in Ephesians based on all that God has done for us. This is a call to, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, right? The, the, uh, that's, the, that, that's the line that that, that that passage closed on. I urge you to keep the guard to protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want to start the year... Partly because of what we've been through, what we're in the midst of, and what is not over yet. It's a new year, but it's going to be, folks, some of the same stuff for a while. Well, there'll be some new stuff thrown in, too, just to keep it interesting. But in the midst of all that, what I want to talk about is how to stay together when we can't all be together. How to stay together, how to guard that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, when we have differing perspectives and sometimes sharp differences of opinion. And certainly you will, you will feel that just in life and in the midst of the culture and even within your own family, you will also experience that at times within your extended church family of all these other churches and different things they're doing and approaches they're taking and sometimes within one's own church family. That's true at any time. And it just, it just ramps up. It just uh, gets heightened, amplified, when we have increased external pressures upon us. There's something called background stress. That you don't re really even know you're being stressed by things, and yet it has an effect on you. And it impacts the margins that you have in terms of patience, forbearing with, uh, tolerance of, acceptance. The, the margins of grace that you have to extend to others can be impacted by that background stress. And we are living in a, a, a time of significant background stress. Now, did you notice when Ephesians 4 started, he read... I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, in, in, in a one who has given and sacrificed much, who has a right to speak in light of all that God has done for us in Christ, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. God has called us into glory and to walk worthy of it. And we're expecting then, when we're told, I urge you to walk worthy of this calling which you've been called, that worthy of that calling means something. It looks like things. And I'm expecting to hear next different things I should do and not do. I'm, I'm thinking of moral behaviors that are now going to be listed and in a sense, they are, but the kinds of things Paul starts with are surprising to me. As you think about it now, perhaps they'll be surprising to you as well. He doesn't, he doesn't begin with, like is our, our tendency, things that I do and don't do that, that God approves of. Well, he does, but not in the kinds of moral behaviors and conduct that I might think of. 
this is kind of some of the, the softer stuff, the um, soft clay of the Christian life, if you will. He begins with, walking worthy of our calling means to walk in humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love. I was expecting standards. I was expecting called to account and holding one another accountable. And he starts from a whole different perspective, doesn't he? Well, there's room for that too. It'll, it'll, as you continue in Ephesians 4 and 5, you'll, you'll, you'll get more of that. In fact, you'll get into uh, sticky passages about marriage and so forth that you don't want to get into. So we won't this morning, maybe another time. But, but that... Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with, those are the things that are, are the elements of how we'll stay together when we can't all be together. We're in a situation where some of the church can gather, some of the church cannot gather. We're, we're in a situation where many of our congregation are joining us online from home or somewhere else. They're not able to come into a large gathering of people. We are, we are still in an environment where, where many churches around us are not meeting at all yet. How do we stay together as the church overall in the community as well as in our own church family? How do we stay together and we can't be together? We're at a time when it is easy to be divided, isn't it? We're in a very uh, 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 a heightened partisan political age when there are differences among us about political issues and how should we respond to them. Should we protest or should we not protest, one thing or the other? Should we withdraw from it all or should we vote and participate or should we actually actively advocate and give our energies to try to bring about political change? Not only what you might advocate for, but you'll have differences with people about what level of involvement even a Christian ought to have. We've been wrestling a lot with, with COVID measures. Should we, uh, or different places, shut down or should we open up? Should we wear masks or should we not wear masks? Do we like, do we think wearing masks is a good thing? Do we think wearing masks is just something we have to tolerate and put up with? Should we as a church gather together and how much or how little, often or less frequently? Should we be singing? Should we be following the mandates that, that are civil authorities are giving us, or should we be fighting against those mandates and running to court? There are sharp differences of opinion in all of these areas. And I have to say, I am grateful. As we have navigated this since March of last year, whew, it's been a while, hasn't it? As we've been navigating this since March of last year, I, I, I am grateful for the, for the attitude that has pervaded among our church body because I know, I know, well, because I know me and I know you, I know that we have not always been in agreement about what we're doing. Can't be, it's too many different people. And yet there has been a gracious understanding for one another. An understanding for one another even when you don't understand why this or that is being done or not done. And that's been a 
That's been a, 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 a gift for us. That's been a strengthening thing for us as a church. That's one of the things that has enabled us to stay together when we can't all be together. And I thought it good because we are going to continue in an age that is divisive. It'll continue to be divisive. Well, for instance, when politics and COVID come together, and thus government and thus politics impacts much more of daily life, people are going to then get much more passionate and active in their opinions, even angry about politics, because it's touching much closer to home. If it doesn't really affect anything in my life, it might not bother me nearly as much. But when it does, then we have much sharper opinions about it and what should be done. So we are going to continue in that kind of a environment. The currents in which we as fish swim in are going to be raging towards increasing tensions. But that doesn't have to be what controls us or carries us. I wanted to start our new year, and we're, we're going to be um, moving into a study of Romans, a 16, well, plus an introduction, a 17-week study in Romans starting next Sunday. Some of the discipleship groups are going to be starting with uh, tracking in this study of Romans, reading through Romans together each week, as well as focusing chapter by chapter in their journaling and, and hearing and sharing together, memorizing a, a key verse in that chapter. So this is going to be an opportunity to get a wonderful grounding of foundations of faith, but I wanted to peek ahead a little bit. Well, I did this in Daniel earlier, last year as well. We peeked way ahead in the book of Daniel and then backed up and started a study of the whole book. And we're going to do that in Romans as well because I wanted to start our year with this idea of how do we stay together? I, I don't want to take what we've done pretty well for granted. But I want to strengthen us in that for our sake as a church as well as our influence among other believers in our community and the impact that can have for the gospel more broadly. I want to start in Romans chapter 14 then. Romans chapter 14 was a verse that several, about 50 Clark County pastors, you've heard me reference this before, because about 50 plus Clark County pastors were together on a Zoom call. Now, you don't really have a Zoom call with 50 people, you know that. Most people watch and a few, a few people are, are, are more actively talking. But uh, we had a shared consensus together that, well, first of all, we realized we're, we're going to have, as churches, different perspectives along the way. And we had no idea yet how long this was going to be and what it was all going to mean. And yet, one of the things we agreed to was we needed to apply Romans 14 among our churches. We need to apply it in such a way that let the church that gathers not judge the church that does not gather. And let not the church that does not gather judge the church that does gather. Let the one who wears a mask not judge the one who doesn't wear a mask. Let the one who does not wear a mask not judge the one who does. That's an application of Romans 14 to a particular cultural scenario that all of our churches were facing. And as I've talked with pastors in different churches about what they're doing, that attitude is, has, has really oiled our relationship. It's kept there from being needless friction, and it can work within the body as well. 
So open your Bible to Romans chapter 14, your Bible, your device, uh, however you're, you're following along this morning, but I encourage you to follow along in the Word as we go. Romans 14 is a chapter that deals with debatable things, things that we can give room to one another in. Uh, it starts, the topic starts with about eating meat or vegetables, uh, uh, also observing, later on it moves into observing days, and those days might be Sabbath days, it might be festival days, it's, it's, it's not clear, because coming to a decision about eating this or observing that is not the point. The point of the chapter is actually how we respond to the differences. So let me read just the first uh, four verses of Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him or her, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or fall, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord is able to uphold his own, even if they don't get every call right. Well, that's encouraging for me, because I don't get every call right. Now, it starts talking about the one who believes he may eat anything, the other one eats only vegetables. What is this talking about? Uh, should I be an, an omnivore or a herbivore, right? Is that the, is the, is that the pressing question here? Well, the, the, the issue could be Gentile versus Jewish. It could be that Gent, Jewish Christians in the Roman church are hesitant to eat unclean foods still, even though they've come to faith in Christ. They still don't want to, like Peter on that rooftop in, in, in the book of Acts, didn't want to eat meats that were unclean. And God told him, no, 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 don't you call unclean what I have called clean. And yet still those, those background um, uh, norms can still continue for these Jewish believers and how to, how to, how to, how to integrate that. It, it could also relate to uh, Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, Roman believers who were pagans, came to faith in Christ, were used to eating food sacrificed to idols, and now they're not sure what to do with that. That's addressed in 1 Corinthians 8, that, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, that, that these, these um, you know, the idol really isn't anything. You can eat the meat if you're, if you're eating it in faith that there is one God. And yet, for a lot of people, they're still, with all that background of, of pagan temple participation, this sure feels a lot like idolatry that they're still participating in. Actually, is the third option for what's being talked about here, especially because it talks about vegetarianism. One can eat anything, the other only eats vegetables. That seems to narrow, that seems to be even tighter than meat sacrificed to idols, or certain unclean meats, but any meat other than vegetables. In the first century in Rome, there was a trending fad, a philosophy that said we should only eat vegetables. People shouldn't eat meat at all. That was better for you. It was better for you, your health. It was better for your, for your spirit. So it was better for you um, in terms of uh, physical, the material body and even the immaterial soul. It was better for you, for prosperous, to only eat vegetables instead of eating meat. Not unlike vegetarians or vegans today. 
And then other Christians are happily having another steak. Let me have some of that bacon. And that can cause these tensions and, 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 and conflicts. And so then there's this discussion about weak in faith. Now, all of us, that, that, that sounds like a strange phrase, doesn't it? The one who is weak in faith. Now, who's the one weak in faith? But, but welcome the one who is weak in faith. But, but that sounds kind of prejudicial, doesn't it? Some are strong. Some are weak. We need to give room for those poor weak folk, right? And probably the weak in faith phrase was coined by those who considered themselves strong, those who understood things more fully and realized that others didn't yet, so they're, they're still weak. You know, they'll come along. Paul seems to use the language. Think of it in terms of those whose beliefs and thinking are still impacted by other authorities or norms or beliefs from the past. A Jewish person, the law still echoes around in their head and heart, and it still seems strange to eat bacon or shellfish, no matter how delicious it is. It just doesn't feel right. Or for that Jewish person in a, in a, um, with food that came from a temple sacrifice, it just feels like participating again in that worship, even though for them it is not any longer. Still impacted by other authorities or past belief. I'm, uh, one week in faith is, I know this, but it just hasn't fully settled in and soaked into my heart yet, giving me a freedom in that matter. It's a weakness of belief, perhaps, in how both new and different one's perspective can be from the norms of the past and the norms of the culture they came out of. In that sense, brothers and sisters, we are all weak in faith. We all do not yet fully realize how different, how radically old things have passed away and all things have become new. And the things that we still strive after are not nearly as important as we deem them to be. None of us have got that fully figured out yet. So there's certainly some weakness in faith in all of us. Examples then, idols are real gods, and so eating meat sacrificed to them is idol worship. We know the, those idols, Isaiah makes it clear. A guy takes a log, and part of it, he, he cuts it off, and he throws it in his fireplace. The other one, he carves into an image, and he bows down and worships it. It's silly. It's ridiculous, really. And yet... There is some spiritual reality behind it because there are demonic spirits that lead people into idolatry and the image that the man makes is just a touchstone, a point of contact that actually leads them into connection with that demonic spirit. So there is some reality behind it all. Today, some of the perspectives that still echo around in our own head is that death is the end. And death is to be prevented and avoided at all costs. That's, that's our thinking to some level. Because our experience is only in this physical mortal life. Now God's word speaks to us much about a hope that lies beyond the grave, that is eternal in the heavens, that our, our identity is wrapped up in the risen Christ who says that we are already seated in the heavenlies with him, and yet here you are in this room, or your room, with me. Not home yet. And yet, God considers us 
already there. That is our identity. That is our new reality. And yet, well, it comes to play in the whole COVID pandemic how death is to be prevented and avoided at all costs because it's the ultimate end and loss. I do not mean to diminish death by COVID or any other means at all. Please do not hear me wrong. But I was, I was, I was shaken years ago or just disturbed in my thinking by Peter Marshall, who had been the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He died, I think, in his early 40s. But before he died, he wrote at one point this, this sermon that talked about Christian strange views of death. If we really understood the future that's before us, if we understood what the being in the presence of the Lord was to be like, we'd have to be talking a whole lot more about continue on with life, folks. That is going to be wonderful, but it's worth waiting for. Don't rush there. Don't, get your, don't go play on the freeway if we really understood what the future was. But I don't, make, I don't mean to make light at all of the, the loss. We've had losses in our congregation this week. A dear brother, John Kelly, went home to be with the Lord. That's not his loss. It's our loss. And, and many of you knew him decades longer than I did. And you grieve that loss. It's very real. Someone in our, in our, in our church family lost her, her grandfather father this week, grandmother uh, just a few weeks earlier. Those are losses that are for us now that ache and grieve. And yet, we, we do have a new view of death and future. We have a new view of everything. We have a new view of, well, even what we know and don't know. So this, this aspect of how one can be weak in faith because our thinking is still impacted by things that we knew from before rather than things that we now know from God. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he picks up on that idea of what we eat and don't eat to make a point. 1 Corinthians 8, beginning of verse 1, Now considering food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now Paul is going to start a three-chapter dissertation into what do we do with food offered to idols. It was an issue in the Corinthian church, a town that was full of idol temples, meat markets, so on. It was, a, it was an issue they needed to address, but before he deals with the specifics of the issue, he lays out a couple of foundational principles. Principle number one is that people can be both weak in faith, but can also be proud in faith. Knowledge can puff up, so we be careful. 1 Corinthians 8 reminds us that our knowledge is limited. We all know, but none of us know as we ought to know. Did you catch that? None of us know as we ought to know. Our knowledge is limited. We don't know what we don't know. And so with our knowledge comes a certain amount of humility about ourselves and certainly toward others. 
Number two, over knowledge, love takes priority. Now, don't hear, again, don't hear me wrong. I'm not, I'm not arguing against knowing the Bible. I love studying the Bible. If I could, I would keep you two hours every, every Sunday morning going through the Scripture together. I love the Word, and I want you to know the truth of God that's here. And yet, love takes priority over knowledge, even though we do truth in love. Now, verse 4 of chapter 8 adds one more thing. Therefore, as to eating of food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. An idol has no real existence. The idols and the false confidences that we trust in, they are vain. They are futile. They are empty. They cannot keep us, preserve us, save us. They are these so-called gods. Uh, they are spiritual realities, the, the spirit behind the idol that I mentioned, but they are not to be feared. They cannot preserve us, and they cannot, they cannot um, harm us apart from God's protection. Things that we have confidence in, we trust in, but in vain. Well, there are idols in any culture. What are some of those in ours? Because I'm, I'm relating this and the stresses that we're facing to the COVID situation, uh, let me start with medical practices. Medical, health care is a big issue. An Affordable Care Act was passed, and that was a huge issue. Why? Because medical care and the keeping of our physical lives is really important to each one of us. Not merely the keeping of our lives, but the, but the pre- protecting ourselves from pain and discomfort as well, right? So medical care is a big deal, but remember this, please. Medical care, and it's amazing what the medical field is able to do today. But medical practice can heal and cure, but it cannot give or keep life. People that are not at all expected to die in the midst of medical care do. And people that the medical experts are long ready to give up on stick around. My, my father-in-law is one of those who's in his third year now after fourth? Fourth year now after they thought they lost him when he was almost 80 within five times over several months. The whole, the whole medical team was, was telling mom to, you know, start making plans now. We need to make a decision here. And it's four years later. So medical care is not the ultimate in terms of preserve, keeping life or in giving life. God gives life. Our lives are in God's hands. And yet medical practice does, does heal, does cure. And we are grateful for that. Again, please don't hear me wrong that I'm dismissing at all medical expertise. I'm grateful for it. I'm humbly grateful for it and the differences that are made. Another confidence that we have is in education and science. I can speak from various levels of education. And certainly, what do you hear today? Follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. Except the scientists don't agree. And so what we are doing is following one opinion over another, and that's where we move right back into what? That realm of humility 
and graciousness toward others with other opinions. People who hold their opinions just as dearly as you hold theirs, yours. The New Testament, the gospel lean strongly toward yielding my rights, my preferences, my desires in choosing, yielding that for the sake of others. Could I do just a quick survey? Jesus describes his ministry, for the Son of Man has come not to be served, and if anybody was entitled, he was. Whenever you're wondering about an entitlement age and the proper response, remember Jesus who was born more entitled than anybody. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The one who had every right and entitlement to be served did not come to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. Paul used his citizenship and his right as a Roman not to serve himself, but to give protection for others. He took the beating and then applied the citizenship to cover others that he was going to leave behind. Paul had this mindset that I will become all things to all people that I might in some way save some, or by some means save some. That he would, he would give his rights, whether it was to those under the law, he would become under the law. To those who, who were outside the law, he would become as outside the law. Not, not accountable to God himself, but not keeping various aspects of Jewish law in order that he could come near to people who were outside of the law. He adjusted his preferences and practices to serve the needs of others. Philippians 2 tells us to consider others more important than ourselves. First Thessalonians gives us a ministry example of, I came to you as a nursing mother tenderly caring for you. As a faithful father, we, we gave to you not only the gospel, Paul writes, but our own lives. And every parent knows what he means by that. I have to smile when our, when our, our youngest and his wife are now parenting, six months now, and they're experiencing all of what it is to give up for a little one. Yes, weak in life she is. And yet they treasure her. And because they treasure her, they will make great sacrifices of their own comfort and convenience and desires for the sake of that child that God has trusted into their care. Every parent knows what it means to yield my right or preference for the sake of others. And what we do in our own families, we do in God's family as well. And we do as God's family to the people around us. All this to say that while conservative Christians value being right because truth matters, and, and all humanity is accountable to God's truth. We are accountable to God's truth whether we believe it or not. And yet, there are times when being right is not the main thing. Okay? Even though we believe that God's truth is absolute and everybody is accountable to it, accountable to it whether they believe in absolute truth or not, there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God was right. He is right. But there are times for us in relation to one another and others where being right is not the main thing. There are times to receive one another, even with differences, and not to differ about the difference. That's what Romans 14 said, right? Receive one who seems to you weaker in faith, but not for the sake of correcting them to quarrels or opinions. 
if we're going to apply that to COVID precautions. There are some things that are true. There are things that are opinions or conclusions, although cannot be shown to be absolutely true. There are things that we do know are true, things that can be proven just by one or two examples of it actually happening. Other things seem that way. Studies suggest, but those are not absolute truths. And we need to be careful about what we cling to and what we're willing to hold in an open hand. For instance, COVID-19 is a contagious virus that can lead to death. It can lead to death for people of any age, not only people of some ages. Although some ages are certainly more at risk than others. But across the age spectrum, people have apparently died from COVID-19. Or COVID-19 being the initial infection that causes other things to happen that result in death. COVID is a contagious virus that can lead to death. Humans are mortal. We know this absolutely true. God tells us so. Humans are mortal and subject to death. We cannot avoid that, folks. We want to. We would like to. We try to, but we cannot avoid it. You are mortal and subject to death. You could this week be hit by a virus. You could this week be hit by a bus. You say the wrong, wrong, wrong thing around the wrong group of people and you might be hit by one of us. Okay? We are subject to death from a whole variety of means, hum, other humans included. Virus, bus, and us. All of those are possible. Okay? We are subject to death and we cannot avoid that, ultimately. We'll try to postpone it as long as possible. Government, another absolute. Government has mandated authority. And it's right for Christians to yield to that civil authority that has been instituted by God. And yet, government's authority is limited. Now, this is important. Government's authority is limited whether the government realizes it or not. Did you know that the Supreme Court is not the ultimate decider? God is. The Supreme Court may decide something this way or that way, but that doesn't make it the, the ultimate truth. God's truth is absolute. And hopefully we will try to, try to muddle our way around it and get a clearer focus on it. But government has a limited authority, and that's why there's that classic line in Scripture where, where John and Peter stand before the council and they say, you choose, you tell us which we should do, obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. There comes a time when government intrudes. It happened in the book of Daniel, Right? When the government of the day said, everybody bows, and these guys said, we can't do that. Because your mandate has intruded into the, our worship of God as God has called us. And that's where we must stand. Christians have a responsibility to care for one another. Now, how do we live that out in a COVID era? You have all kinds of different opinions. It can be by isolating, protecting one another by isolating all of us and not spreading things. We also care for one another by gathering together. 
Example, just at the individual level. If I know that you are depressed and despairing in loneliness and aloneness, we will find a way to come alongside you. We are obligated to do that. God calls us to, commands us to care for one another. However, if I know that I'm COVID positive, I am not going to come visit you. Why? Because God has mandated that I need to care for my brothers and sisters. And care for them also means not knowingly passing something on that would be harmful to them. So there's, a, there's some gray area here. There's some ambiguity in not the things that we know for absolute, but it's the things that we don't know for absolute. It's the ambiguities in the things that we think, the weakness in faith and the bearing with and giving room for one another on the areas where we think but can't know, where we have opinions and convictions, but we do not have and cannot have certainty. You know, there's even differences in churches. Even churches in our own church venture Northwest family have come to different conclusions. Some of our church venture churches in, in this area are meeting almost as if normal, not really doing much of anything about the virus or precautions. Others are meeting online only, not gathering at all in the present moment. We've chosen a path that's some, somewhere in between those two. We've chosen a path that we're able to gather in person and to encourage people to participate online and try to do things online so that people aren't feeling like they're not getting the service if they're only online. We want that to be a, a viable and, and, and real option for people who it's not safe for them or they do not feel comfortable and able yet to be able to gather in person because of things that are going on and around with them. We're sitting six foot distance between families. We're not checking everybody's ID and, and family connections before you sit down. We are asking everybody to wear a mask, but we are not checking and enforcing. If somebody is not, we're trusting you that you have that reason that keeps you from wearing the mask and and. We're distance, and we're going to trust one another for that. Like the differences between churches, people within our own church have different vulnerabilities to the pandemic and different opinions about it, and that's going to continue. Some are attending gatherings whom you think should be more isolated. Or some are not attending gatherings whom you, and they're staying isolated, whom you think need to join in and be with others. Have you had one of those conversations where somebody was upset with you because you were either gathering or not? Or you were upset with somebody because either they were gathering or not? Sure we have. We've all been on one side or another of those conversations because this is real. And there's where we need to give one another room and grace. We try to find the right course. We try to, for, for, for our church, let me explain what we're doing. We're, we're trying to apply civil guidelines while also doing what we believe to be essential to worship. We recognize that different churches are going to differ as a matter of faith on what is essential worship, what we must do, versus what we can just lay aside for now. We're going to have differences on that, even within our own church. While congregation singing, for instance, is contrary to the guidelines, 
We are singing much less than we have in the past, and yet we are still going to sing some. And yet while we sing, we, are, we, are, we, we realize that first we stopped including the music in the stream. We realize the people at home desperately need to hear others sing in faith and to, and to be able to sing those songs of truth as well. And yet we're not showing the worship team this time. And part of this is we, our intention is not to make a spectacle. Our intention is not to plant our flag in the ground and say, this is right. This is what we've got to do and are supposed to do. And they can't stop us. That is not our intention at all. It grieves me that we have to, as a congregation, we've come to the point where we feel like what God has called us to in worship requires us to do what our authorities would say don't do. I don't want to be in that place with them. And so we are, we, we are showing the lyrics. We are, we, the audio of, of our singing is, is, is in that online stream, but we're not showing the worship team again because don't, we don't want to put anybody in focus in terms of we're not trying to be defiant. We're not trying to make a spectacle at all. With, um, uh, we're, we're not trying to hide the fact that we have chosen to still sing some it's a public service. In the age of cell phones, you can't hide anything, folks. That is not our intention either. We simply do not choose to make an, a spectacle and try to put pressure on those in civil authority that are trying to make very difficult decisions. Now, someone is gathering with others. You might agree with them or not agree with them. How about just posing the question differently. Why are you doing that? How about, how are you reducing risk of harm to yourself and others? If you're gathering, how are you reducing risk to yourself or to others? Because both matters. If someone is not gathering for others with worship, are you also concerned that how are you feeding your own faith and how are you then still finding ways to encourage others? Because for your own faith, both of those are important. Your ability to minister to others and give yourself for others and your ability to feed your own faith from the rest of the church, that's important. And rather than are you gathering or not gathering, are you doing this or not doing that, it's like how are you taking care for others and how are you also feeding and encouraging others in the midst of this? Let's change the question. Let's change the conversation. My greatest concern as we have been able to regather as church again since the fall, my greatest concern is not how many people are coming back. My greatest concern is as we get into the norm of people in the church again, we could easily leave some behind and forget about them week to week. And that would be a disaster for us in terms of our living Christ toward one another and in terms of their spiritual encouragement and strengthening in faith at a time when all of us need it. My point here is that as things get, there, there, are, there are things that are more worth getting energized about than others. There are things that we need to press into, we need to give our attention and our focus to, we need to expend our energies on eternal priorities Eternal essentials, I'll call them. And we need to give room to one another in terms of temporary options and opinions. Eternal essentials like building one another up in the body of Christ. Building one another up in the gospel for the gospel. Equipping others for the ministry God has given them to go to, to bring in and to build up. Whether we're gathered or whether we're scattered. 
A good restatement of this is in Romans 15. Romans 15, the first couple of verses. We who are strong, do you consider yourself strong? If you are, our aim is not to correct others. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself as it is written. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Think of it. The Son of God as the ultimate example of the strong bearing for the weak. The Son of God dies for the sins of those who deem to take his life. The, the, the Son of God dies for those who do not believe in him in the moment, do not care for him and his Father at all. And yet his response to them, Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't know what they do. Our attitude to people around us that don't know what we know, as well as our attitude that we don't know what we don't know, gives all kinds of room for grace. And that's what Jesus, in that table with his disciples, was showing them. Where the one who was strongest bore the burden of we who are weak. The worship team is going to come. We're going to, going to sing one song before we come together to the table. During that song, if you didn't get elements, then you'll find them on the back table just in front of the uh, entrance doors. And uh, if you're at home and want to join us around the table, if you have some juice and bread that you can use for that, we, we, we hope you're able to participate. Father, thank you. Lord, that though we are not nearly as strong as we think we are, Father, we do not yet know as we ought. Lord, our, our trust then, our confidence, is not in what we know. Our trust and our confidence is whom we know, the Son of God, Jesus, our Savior. Lord, uh, give us grace and graciousness toward one another and to those you put us around. The Lord, in the midst of the stresses from the last year and into this next one, Lord, that graciousness would be a balm to people's spirits in the midst of worries, concerns, fears, and just weariness. Lord, use us then in your grace, your graciousness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.